The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before we start today's show, I would like to thank Barry, George, and Jeff Wode for their recent donations. For those of you who are familiar with the name Jeff Wode from a very popular uh, English comedy of the 1980s i salute you and thanks again for those donations today is thursday so of course it's time for the regular visit of my good friend dr peter hammond bring him up right now peter are you with me yes i am thank you andrew thank you so much peter and folks peter's put another excellent presentation together for us today um it's going to be on the netflix series the crown it's called the real story behind the netflix series the crown now i know a lot of you christians out there will not subscribe to netflix uh for the way that they blaspheme jesus christ i think they've got a series portraying him as a homosexual all sorts of nasty things like that indeed there was a film i've been after getting for a long time called the irishman that was years in the making with you know, um, De Niro and Pacino and all these things in it. And uh, at one point I thought, shall I just get Netflix for a month and just to watch that? But I couldn't bring myself to do it. And um, I just wanted to wait until it was out on, you know, a DVD, Blu-ray, what have you, and then hopefully get a second-hand copy so I didn't give them any money directly. But uh, Peter's been studying the series The Crown, which has won uh, numerous awards, and uh, he's got uh, some very interesting information on that today. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off? Well, you know, Andrew, I'm always interested in history. So when they come out with films or TV series claiming to be a true story or inspired by true events or, uh, as in the case of The Crown, uh, using a lot of real-life events, people, characters, uh, historical material, interweaving film footage of the time with the uh, fictionalized things. It's actually quite insidious. Now, my wife is very into like the Downton Abbey series. And so we, we did, of course, a critique of that a while back, uh, which was interesting, but that was openly meant to be a fictional, although it did realistically portray an era and a time. This, The Crown, is far more insidious. Now, I've actually, um, because of my wife's great interest in this and my interest in history, and she has wondered, is this true and is that true? And I've been doing a lot of reading up about these things to, to find out because it's quite insidious. And uh, do you know that uh, 
A major author, Hugo Vickers, who's an acknowledged authority on the British royal family, has actually produced a book uh, critiquing the crown. It's called The Crown Dissected, Seasons 1, 2, and 3. And uh, I'm sure he's going to come out with one on season four as well, which covers the Thatcher and Princess Diana years of the 1980s. But at the and I've just completed the 1980 series of this, the, the season four of The Crown. So The Crown kicked off in 2016. So it's been going uh, almost four years now, uh, starting with the abdication of Edward and therefore the father of uh, Queen Elizabeth coming to power, King George VI. And... Uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth's courtship, a marriage to Prince Philip, and uh, then with the death of her father, King Edward VI, going into a reign. So the series basically follows British history from the time of the, the Queen um, taking through her reign uh, right from the beginning. So it's covering the 50s, 60s, 70s, and now it's covered the 80s in the season four. Now they're about to go into season five, I assume sometime next year. But it's disturbing to me uh, on many levels because I know some of the people and some of the events involved. And what's very disturbing is what's not there. And what's intriguing is how they misrepresent a lot of what is there. So just to quote from the authority, first and foremost, Hugo Vickers. So the Financial Times described Hugo Vickers as the most knowledgeable royal biographer on the planet. So Hugo Vickers has uh, commented on royal matters on television and radio since 1973. He's been a historical advisor on a number of films, the author of books on the Queen Mother and the Duchess of Windsor and the Prince, uh, Princess of uh, Greece, uh, that's Prince Philip's mother, and Queen Mary and uh, many others. So um, P, uh, he... Uh, Hugo Vickers has uh, said that he's deeply disturbed about about the, the series. He says, "Look, we understand there's there's place for a bit of fictionalization and um, writers' license. Um, we we understand that there's there's a place for artistic license, but he says far more than artistic license has gone to making of the show. He says it's extremely difficult to decipher between what's true and what's dramatized." And he says, what you have to do with The Crown is just suspend all belief about it. It's so well filmed, so lavishly produced, with good actors and good actresses. It looks very convincing, but it is all totally, fundamentally dishonest. And I'm quoting straight from Hugo Vickers in his book, uh, The Crown Dissected. So it is all totally, fundamentally dishonest. The TV series, the Netflix series, The Crown, might have won millions of fans across the globe, as far as South Africa and New Zealand and Canada, uh, with its dramatization of the life and reign of Britain's Queen Elizabeth. But this royal historian says it is peddling a subversive anti-monarchist message. And I certainly detected, even before I'd read anything that Hugo Vickers had said, my comments to my wife was, whoever's writing the script and producing and directing this is obviously very pro-Labour, extremely anti-Margaret Thatcher, uh, very anti-Rhodesia, uh, and anti uh, the old South Africa, uh, this person's actually somewhat anti-monarchist, which is strange because the clientele of this film would be people who pro the monarchy. And it starts out with the monarchy being very sympathetically portrayed. But after the first two seasons, it takes a very, very different approach and starts to become extremely subversive, I would say libelous and slanderous of the royal family. 
Uh, so again, to quote from Hugo Vickers, the Royal Historian, uh, he said, the film is fiction. It shows and features ludicrous events, misrepresents characters, and includes some idiotic scenes. So quote unquote idiotic scenes. I, I don't think uh, Hugo Vickers as a historian is much given to uh, exaggeration, but idiotic scenes is certainly what I would have said as well. Uh, and he says, we understand a bit of fiction to help understand the truth, but not to pervert the truth and twist the truth around so you get a completely false view about what happened. And he said, that's what's happened with the film The Crown. So this, before I give my opinions, I'm just quoting from the authority, Hugo Vickers, that uh, he says, this is a totally subversive message. It's perverted. It, it is giving people a totally, completely false view about what happened. And so he says one of the most dangerous things is people seeing this lavishly produced pageant may get the impression that they now know what happened uh, in, in these events. Now, we understand some things happen in public, and you can actually go and look at some of the actual footage of the coronation or of the marriage of Princess Diana. And, you know, it's all in our public consciousness. We remember those things. And uh, obviously, it would have made an impact. Just a bit of humorous anecdote from my side. Uh, 1981, July 1981, I'd just come out of the South African Army uh, from my two years national service, which was to be followed by 10 years part-time call-ups where we'd be called up for two to three months a year on what we call our citizens force, but that could still throw you across the border. Uh, but um, I'd come out of two years in national service and I was in Johannesburg trying to get literature together for my uh, mission across the border to Mozambique. So I went to Scripture Gift Mission, no one there. I thought, that's strange. And I wandered uh, across uh, to uh, other places, all nations, gospel publishers and Pretorianos, and there was virtually no people on the streets and there was virtually not a car and I could jaywalk down Jeppe Street and I was thinking, where is everyone? This is looking awfully uh, uncanny, strange. There was so much uh, just... Uh, absolutely like a ghost town and this is the middle of the week and uh, so by the time I got back to Pretoria after a fruitless day every single mission ministry literature place that I was going to Bible and so on they're all closed and when I got back to my host's home that night they said so did you see the wedding what wedding Princess Diana and Charles's wedding well it uh, just shows how I was totally out of touch I didn't even know they were getting married at that stage I was I'd come straight back from the border, from the army. I'd been months in the bush. What did I know? But there I was, maybe the only person wandering around in Johannesburg and Pretoria that day who didn't know about the royal wedding. And <laughs> I was wondering why uh, every place I went to was closed. But uh, just to let people know that in July 1981, when Princess Diana and Charles got married, there was uh, such interest in even a place as remote and far away as South Africa. And let's face it. We'd even left the Commonwealth, been expelled from the Commonwealth. South Africa was under sanctions. We were in the middle of a bush war. We were fighting a very vicious war around. We were having car bombs in our streets. We were having landmines uh, in the roads. Uh, South Africa was in the middle of a very ugly war. But on that day in July 1981, when Prince Diana and Charles got married, virtually everything stopped, every place closed, and people gathered around to watch televised live uh, the, the wedding of the century. And that's the kind of um, impact that the British royal family still has on our part of the world. So uh, even in 
even in my home and mission, there are um, uh, pictures and memorabilia about Queen Elizabeth II and, and others. And uh, it just reflects uh, my father's allegiance to the monarchy as someone who fought all six years of the Second World War in the Eighth Army and so on. And uh, But my mother, my wife, uh, they're all fascinated by the royals. And so a film like this, The Crown, will inevitably draw a lot of people in. And the problem is that when you when you see a lot of things depicted that you know are real and true, you may come to believe that the private conversations and speeches behind closed doors, which no one could possibly know what was said, you may come to assume that that's also true. Uh, nobody has ever given an account or record of what the Queen and her husband or her children say behind closed doors, or what Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister and the Queen would have discussed in their weekly briefings at Buckingham Palace. And yet, a lot of the Crown consists of uh, banter, discussions, speeches, comments, and uh, of course, everything is significant to the film, from raised eyebrows to uh, furrowed brows to just the look or the glare or where the camera focuses. And so, unless the producer, director, and scriptwriter are very dedicated to remaining true to what is known, uh, you can easily have false impressions created, even about events that you know about and, and know as historical, by merely the angle of the camera, uh, the uh, look on the face of the person, uh, the what is focused on, uh, exactly how uh, the person's body language is, and so on. So, in fact, I have to agree with Hugo Vickers that uh, this series, The Crown, is giving a completely false view about what happened, and it does feature idiotic scenes and ludicrous events, and it misrepresents characters, and I think it's it's very disturbing. So, uh, for example, I could not help but notice, as somebody who, of course, was brought up in Rhodesia, that Rhodesia doesn't even get a mention. Now, considering in the 1960s and 70s, which is covered in the second and third seasons, and they've got Harold Wilson coming regularly to Palace, and oh, is Harold Wilson portrayed very positively, even though we know that Harold Wilson was a KGB agent of influence. And uh, although the series dismisses that, Chapman, Pinchner, and other historians on MI6 and MI5 and on the whole Secret Service and on the Cambridge Five have documented Harold Wilson was, without a doubt, a KGB agent of influence. And while they do focus on Anthony Blunt, as uh, the Queen's uh, advisor on art matters, was one of the Soviet agents, a KGB agent, uh, they ignore the other of the Cambridge Five, uh, which were far more scandalous, actually, and, and far more devastating. Uh, they ignore what Spycatcher documented, uh, that even Sir Roger Hollis, uh, head of MI6, uh, who would have been M in the um, a James Bond era. Of course, James Bond's a fictional character, but the actual head of the service that he would be reporting to, M, uh, in, in our understanding, uh, was a KGB agent from 1940s through to 1968. Uh, so all through key time of, of the Cold War, uh, British Secret Service was riddled with KGB agents and uh, right up to Downing Street and there's quite a story behind Harold Wilson and the Perfuma scandal, which if this Netflix series wanted to come into high drama, they could have used. And so 
Uh, interesting, Harold Wilson, who betrayed Rhodesia after happily giving independence to uh, Marxists like Kenneth Gohinder in Zambia, northern Rhodesia, refused it to southern Rhodesia, which had never needed foreign aid, which had never needed a British soldier or British pound, um, because it was Rhodesia from the very beginning was self-supporting, self-governing, self-defending. And not only did Britain not have to put any money into Rhodesia, uh, Rhodesia gave men, manpower, machines, and money for the British war effort. And uh, Britain um, can note that Rhodesia provided more men percentage of its population than any other part of the Empire Commonwealth in both the First and the Second World War. So uh, interesting, Rhodesia doesn't get a mention. But uh, Harold Wilson is portrayed awfully sympathetically. Uh, in in the series, as is every uh, Labour Party mem member, um, Prime Minister. But every Conservative is dealt with quite harshly. And uh, Margaret Thatcher, the worst of all. Now, considering that I know enough about Margaret Thatcher in that she's the one who got me out of prison in Zambia when I was locked up there in 1987, and she is Prime Minister in Britain, she personally intervened at the Vancouver Commonwealth conference and uh, gave pressure to bear on Kenneth Gohinder to set me free and the rest of my frontline mission team. So uh, I was quite um, outraged at how Margaret Thatcher is portrayed in a bit of a caricature and you don't get the full picture of what she's dealing with. In the film, uh, in Netflix series on the crown, the Commonwealth is portrayed very positively as though the Queen unquestioningly loved the Commonwealth as her own family, as she says. Whereas uh, Margaret Thatcher, she occasionally has given some good sentences to say, um, which we know reflected her as, a, as uh, she really was, but they don't give any facts to back it up. Uh, but Margaret Thatcher makes a comment about uh, them just being a bunch of dictators and uh, tribal outfits. And uh, of course, the Commonwealth was made up of a bunch of dictators, and, and that's a fact. And uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, was quite right to oppose them when they were trying to put sanctions on South Africa. A whole series, uh, a whole episode of Netflix Crown series is dedicated to the campaign against so-called apartheid South Africa, ignoring the fact of the Cold War and the fact of the Soviet threat and the communist threat and the Marxist revolutionaries and the necklace murders and all the atrocities being done by the communists. They make it seem like it's a one-sided thing and just mouth the typical communist propaganda time that South Africa was a white, racist, oppressive government that was oppressing the black people, ignoring the fact that almost all the black people who were being killed at that time were being killed by communist terrorists in the attempt to bring about revolution in South Africa and that South Africa was defending itself against Marxist radical terrorists with the total support of the Soviet Union, Red China, behind the ANC and SWAPO, and the Cubans on the border, no mention of the Cuban or Soviet forces or the Vietnamese forces and others on the borders of South Africa and Southwest Africa threatening us and the huge conventional battles that were going on. So that was disturbing that the context wasn't given. What's also intriguing is there's no presence of Ronald Reagan. Now, you get through the uh, first episode, second episode, third episode, you always get the American presence making a scene, you know, whether it is uh, Eisenhower or uh, whether it is uh, Lyndon Johnson, 
uh, and uh, definitely John F. Kennedy and his wife, Jackie Kennedy, they all uh, make appearances and, and are important parts of the, of the film, as they would have been important parts of the Queen's life. But in the whole of the uh, fourth episode, which covers the 80s, while Margaret Thatcher's dealt with negatively, Ronald Reagan's not even referred to in passing. He's not even on a TV screen in the corner. He's not even mentioned uh, in an aside. And the Cold War is just absent from the fourth season. Just no mention of the colossal struggle that was going on worldwide for freedom and all that was at stake and the Berlin Wall and everything like that. I've got to assume that the scriptwriter and the producer and director of, of the Netflix series The Crown are either imbeciles and ahistoric fools who don't know anything about 20th century history or they're pro-Marxist, pro-communist revolutionary um, Republicans, anti-monarchists, that they are uh, pro-socialists. Certainly they seem to be Labour Party um, supporters on uh, the most fanatical level because when you look at the Netflix series, well, it's very glamorous, beautiful sets, lavish uh, clothing and uh, I must say Brilliant acting scenes and uh, great performances, but the scriptwriter, the director, the producer are giving overall an impression of a dysfunctional family, of an outdated institution that is anti-monarchist, putting into the queen and the queen mother's mouths comments that indicate they don't even believe uh, that the monarchy has any re respectability, any role any importance, any legitimacy, which is utterly impossible to believe that they could say this. And there is an entire uh, episode given to this intruder to Buckingham Palace, Fagan, this out-of-work character who wandered into Buckingham Palace on two occasions and spent um, a few minutes speaking to the Queen in the bedroom after surprising her there. Now, as has been said, Nobody knows what they discussed, but we do have the version of this character who was uh, arrested for this, uh, and nowhere is there any suggestion that he made a speech to the Queen attacking Margaret Thatcher or her policy or speaking about unemployment in the country, anything like that. In fact, he had a very different story to tell. Of course, the Queen's not going to tell you what they discussed, and there is no doubt that this is fictional, but the whole episode is one big anti-Thatcher campaign, and they put an incredibly eloquent speech against everything Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party stood for, and the revitalizing of Britain. And uh, it's it's a brilliant speech in, in the mouth of someone who's meant to have been uh, mentally disturbed and someone who couldn't keep down a job and so on. Unbelievable that a person who couldn't keep his wife and children and couldn't uh, keep a job would be able to put together such a devastating speech attacking um, and Margaret Thatcher to such an extent that it impressed the Queen that she then uh, made a move against the, the Prime Minister, none of which is backed up by any facts, by any testimony, by any indication at all. This is fiction of a high order, and uh, as uh, Hugo Vickers says, idiotic scenes, ludicrous events, misrepresenting of characters. So it's so important when we get to any of these films that claim to be on uh, real events, We've got to ask, why is that there? Who's the villain? Who's the victim? What's the plot? What's the basic message of this film? And when you get to understand the worldview and where they're going and where they're coming from and what they're recommending and what they're attacking, 
And then you start to think in terms of the standards we hold to, biblical standards, Christian Western civilization standards, conservative standards, traditional standards, constitutional monarchy. We start thinking of, of what actually happened. Then we would say, why did they focus an entire episode on some foul mouth, you know, with the swear words and all, people don't watch The Crown to want to be presented with the vulgar uh, side of um, potty-mouthed uh, pagans uh, like this Fagan that's uh, put in. But that entire episode, absolutely bizarre, but you saw at the end why, just so they could put in a, a big, massive attack on Margaret Thatcher. In fact, more space, more screen time, more uh, words were given to this Fagan character, the intruder, who broke into Buckingham Palace, then Margaret Thatcher gets in the entire series, <laughs> the whole uh, fourth season. So uh, that's bizarre. What's also intriguing is the Falklands War, which was a big uh, matter in the early years of Margaret Thatcher, gets barely mentioned. I mean, it's, it's mentioned, but it's just in passing. And you barely hear anything about the actual war or what was at stake or what was achieved. And it's just very much faded in the background. But what's astounding is, especially as they made a big scene about Margaret Thatcher's son getting lost, apparently, um, although he claims he wasn't lost, but uh, he was out of touch uh, on this uh, Trans-Africa uh, road race. And uh, they were bringing uh, sons at that stage and favorites. And so Margaret Thatcher's favorites, her son, Mark Thatcher, and the Queen's favorite, Prince Andrew. And you're thinking, I know where this is going. Prince Andrew being in the front line, very dangerous work in the middle of the uh, Falklands War, and there was a lot of uh, concern about how can we have an heir to the throne who's, who's uh, in the thick of the fight and bring him back. And, and he refused, and the Queen refused to bring him back also. And there was a lot of respect for uh, the royal family and uh, for Prince Andrew over the fact that uh, they were willing to let him face exactly the same dangers anyone else did. And as a helicopter pilot, in the middle of the Falklands War, there was a lot of planes and helicopters getting shot down. The Argentinian Air Force was very effective, and they gave the stiffest resistance. But there's not even a mention, really. It's, it's barely in passing that Prince Andrew was down there. You wondered, why give so much attention to a non-royal Fagan and a fictional speech that he's meant to have given uh, in this uh, break into the Queen's uh, bedroom, which, which we know is not even true? and yet completely ignore something which is directly to the royal, like Prince Andrew, involved in the Falklands War. Why is apartheid South Africa so caricatured and no mention of the complexities or the battles involved, uh, the, what was at stake? In another part of the season, you get, uh, in, in this season four, right at the beginning, you get there uh, as Princess Diana and Charles are beginning the courtship, Charles makes one comment, next week I must be in Zimbabwe. And that's it. Next week I must be in Zimbabwe. Now, knowing the time, we're talking about 1980, we know why he's going to Zimbabwe. He was going as the official representative of the Crown to hand over Rhodesia to the Marxist mass-murdering thug Robert Mugabe, the red Chinese-backed mass-murderer Robert Mugabe, who devastated and destroyed the country for the next 37 years. And uh, interesting that they could put so much time on one out-of-work person who breaks into the palace, an entire uh, episode into it. 
but they can't even give more than a sentence. Well, they can't even give a sentence to Rhodesia. The word Rhodesia doesn't even appear. We were fighting a 15-year war, holding the line against Marxism, and the, they were making out that this didn't happen. Now, it's important because the Queen was the head of state of Rhodesia from 1965, when Rhodesia declared unilateral declaration of independence on the 11th of November 1965. It ended, God save the Queen, and Rhodesia was a constitutional monarchy. We did not secede from the monarchy, we seceded from uh, Whitehall, from uh, the British um, government's interference, uh, not from the monarchy. We still were under the Queen. But the Queen then was against her own policies and I presume her better judgment, uh, manipulated in dirty, cheap politics to give pardons to every terrorist condemned to death in Rhodesia. So Rhodesia, as a sovereign country, could not continue to have its law and order undermined that when they caught people who had burned people alive, arsonists and murderers and terrorists and so on, and when the highest court in our land had, had passed the death sentence on this murderer, that the Queen, as head of state, she did have the uh, prerogative to give the person a full pardon, which she did. And this was done consistently, forcing Rhodesia to declare itself a republic, much against the wishes of people like my father in 1968, Rhodesia declared itself a republic, and we no longer had the blue, in, the blue flag with the uh, British uh, flag in the corner, in the top left corner, uh, but replaced with a green and white with a unique Rhodesian uh, badge in the middle uh, in the white panel. So the, the fact that the Queen did interfere in Rhodesia's government by pardoning terrorists, you would have thought this could have been a legitimate factor to bring up into the crown, but they completely ignored. They don't even acknowledge that there was a Rhodesia. And, and the fact that Prince Charles was the member of the royal family who handed over this jewel of uh, the British Empire into the hands of Marxist murderer who turned uh, it into a basket case of Marxist starvation and uh, a catastrophe with the worst inflation ever, that Prince Charles had a role in handing over this country in such treachery. It, it caused a lot of grief to pro-royal people in, in Rhodesia, which include people like my father, who were extremely uh, loyal to the crown. And uh, uh, you, you wonder why the Crown didn't go there. Why did they not even go there? But they can spend vast amounts of time uh, giving you heroic views of Harold Wilson and uh, of um, this intruder into Buckingham Palace and yet ignore major events and major personalities like Ronald Reagan and then misrepresent the best Prime Minister Britain's had in centuries, Margaret Thatcher, uh, who... You'd never get the impression from watching The Crown that the country that Margaret Thatcher inherited as prime minister was effectively bankrupt and the pound was a, a, a very weak currency. And yet under Margaret Thatcher, she strengthened Britain and left Britain immeasurably greater and stronger than she had found it with a stronger currency, with a much stronger currency and economy, much stronger military much stronger politically, morally, spiritually, agriculturally, industrially, in every way. And so uh, extraordinary that they, they make it out like all Margaret Thatcher did was to refuse to put sanctions on South Africa, not explaining why 
her reasonings are not given beyond the fact that she's allowed to say it would cost the British economy three billion pounds a year uh, in lost trade with South Africa and put many people in Britain out of work. But aside from that, there's no explanation of the broader picture of the Cold War and what it would do to South Africa. But again, the impression you're given is that Margaret Thatcher was uncaring and uncompassionate, which is repeated over and over and over, including in, in headlines and from the mouth of the Queen herself in fictionalized speeches uh, given behind closed doors, which no one knows what was said. And yet Margaret Thatcher uh, improved Britain on every level, brought uh, unemployment on way down and made Britain far more uh, economically powerful and a stronger current country with a much higher standard of living. You'd never know that from this film. So it's extremely dishonest. And to use a fictionalized series about the royal family in order to advance a socialist Marxist view on the world and to advance a lot of revolutionary goals while about it and to ignore so much that was important. So I look at this and I think, while I would like to recommend a series that's so well acted and got such lavish sets and such brilliant pageantry and a lot of the scenes are, are quite impressive, but the storyline, the, the script writing, the direction and the producing uh, gives you an anti-monarchist, anti-British in a, in a real sense, um, certainly a hostile to Margaret Thatcher, to the extent of ignoring Rhodesia and Ronald Reagan, um, completely stereotyping South Africa in a very dishonest way. One can only agree with uh, the uh, estimation of the uh, royal author Hugo Vickers that this presents a completely false view about what happened. It is subversive. It is totally fundamentally dishonest. And so uh, what Peter Morgan has done in promoting these the series uh, is something very dangerous. And uh, he, Peter Morgan uh, has said, uh, look, this the show is fictional. And when asked uh, what he thought the Queen would think about it, he, he responded that he hoped that she would not watch it. Um, because uh, it is, of course, a work of fiction. But people don't watch it to see a, a view of fiction. Many are watching it, but an idea of what really happened. And considering they put into the first two seasons alone, the first two seasons alone cost $130 million. I believe over £100 million. That's the first two seasons. So we assume the second two seasons, which are even more lavish, might have cost another £100 million. So... You don't put that much money and effort into something uh, for no reason. Where did the financing come from? Why is it that they're portraying things as they are? And we need to recognize that entertainment is one of the five culture-carrying, culture-transforming institutions in society. Marxists identify education, entertainment, news media, religious institutions, and political institutions as the five essential culture-carrying, culture-transforming institutions that need to be infiltrated by the Marxist long march through the institutions of the West. And so here we see entertainment being used to propagandize and to disinform. It's an agent of disinformation propaganda in order to subvert the very realm and to advance goals of the labor left and of the socialists and of the anti-monarchists. I think it is most uh, upsetting and disconcerting. 
I would, I could point out a lot of other things that are wrong, but of course, if a person wants to see technical things that are wrong, uh, Hugo Vickers' book, The Crown Dissected, would do that. But from my point of view, as somebody who lives in Africa, who lived through the revolution of Rhodesia and in South Africa and Southwest Africa, I'm well aware of how our events were distorted. But I could perhaps just add that the way they depicted our friends in Australia uh, is also very dishonest uh, because uh, Australia is also looking thinking, why did they portray um, uh, uh, the uh, Australian Prime Minister Hawke as saying you wouldn't put a pig in charge of a herd of prime beef cattle and uh, even if it did look good in a twin set in pearls. Now, Hawke never said that. And in fact, the Australians are saying, he never, we've got the program, you can see it. He never compared the queen to a pig. Uh, does, why would they put things like that into the series? And there's uh, subversive things, trying to make it out like the whole of Australia was ready to go uh, Republican, and it was only changed by that royal visit and specifically by Princess Diana, which is a nice uh, twist for a dramatic uh, fictional program, but it's not historically honest. And uh, the Australian people aren't so shallow uh, that their allegiance to the Crown just depended on one visit and uh, one individual. Uh, it's, it goes much deeper than that. And Australia's commitment to uh, the monarchy is very deep and uh, very abiding, as we've seen for two centuries. So uh, and I, I was in Australia not that long ago, and the, the view of people of how they're being portrayed in films like this is, uh, it's actually quite shocking. There's other things, uh, such as having Princess Margaret attempting to commit suicide, which is completely false. And there's no end of falsehood uh, that they've got around. They have the Queen visiting uh, uh, Winston Churchill as he's about to die and kissing him, which uh, is told by the royal biographers, absolute nonsense, smaltzy, never happened, um, completely fictional. And uh, there's so much that they do. Uh, they make out that the documentary of 1969 on the um, uh, on BBC and Australian TV was a complete disaster. And yet the fact is, the documentary on the Windsors was super successful. It was well received by the critics. The public loved it. Watched by 400 million people in 130 countries. And 68% of the British population saw it. The British private secretary, um, uh, William Hazeltine, said it's a fantastic success. And uh, it was repeated both in BBC and ITV. Yet in the series, they make it out that it's um, it was a complete disaster and uh, the Queen forbade it to ever be seen again. And then they invent all kinds of affairs and they put words in people's mouths. And But I'll leave that for people who want to get that. They can go to Hugo Vickers. I'm more concerned not just about uh, the libel and dishonesty and misrepresentation to the royal family, but to recent world history and particularly that of the British Empire and Commonwealth and uh, where it affects me most and where I know the best what's going on Rhodesia and South Africa. Uh, I'm personally offended at how Margaret Thatcher has been depicted as uncaring and uncompassionate when I know that she got me out of prison and did a lot of good for so many other people. I think that what you've got in uh, this series is something very insidious and very dangerous. I hope that it leads people to distrust 
the entertainment industry more and also to go back to history books and see what really happened. And uh, I've written quite a lot on history, uh, particularly of South Africa and of Africa. And if people are interested in my reviews of films, uh, films that pretend to be uh, historically based, I've actually got a film review section on my frontline mission, essay.org website. But if anyone's interested in more, I'm going to be bringing out a, a written analysis of this and trying to refer more to Hugo Vickers, who's dealing with actual fact of the royal family, whereas I'm thinking more in terms of uh, what was going on in these different countries that are barely mentioned or misrepresented in the case of South Africa in season four. So back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. And can you please get that uh, direct link to me to your film review section? I know that um, a lot of people in the alternative media are interested in honest film reviews. Uh, there was um, a book, I forget what it was called, but it was coming from a, a right perspective, uh, reviews of uh, popular films and uh, what they really mean. And I'm sure that uh, the audience would be very keen to to read uh, some of your reviews. So if you can get that link to me, we will include that in the post for the show. Uh, AndrewCarringtonHitchcock.com so you can have a look at that as well folks um, the it's a question really did you ever communicate with Margaret Thatcher in any way after she got you released from prison in Zambia in 1987 Peter we sent a thank you letter uh, yes um, I didn't expect to hear personally from her uh, all we got was, was a verbal from a secretary and um, uh, in fact it was a Rhodesian a cabinet minister, Dennis Walker, uh, of the Rhodesia Christian Group, but he'd actually been in the cabinet in Rhodesia, who intervened personally, took my details through to 10 Downing Street to a contact and ensured that it was put in the, uh, in the Prime Minister's hands at Margaret Thatcher was flying off to Vancouver for the October 1987 uh, Vancouver Commonwealth uh, Conference. And so we know uh, that she received it. We know she acted and we know her speech was absolutely brilliant, and um, uh, we certainly thanked her afterwards. Excellent. Yeah, I just wanted to top and tail that because I'm sure the audience would be interested in the outcome. Uh, the other thing is, um, staying on the subject of Margaret Thatcher, um, there's an interesting story now. I can completely understand where you're coming from when you look at the uh, depression almost that we were in in the 70s under the Labour government, Wilson, Callaghan, all that sort of thing, and then she came in. Uh, a lot of people don't like Margaret Thatcher, though, because she raised a lot of money through privatising our industry, you see, and so you're selling off the electric and the gas and uh, the uh, I think BP and the telecoms and all this. Of course, that raised a lot of money. However, I also heard a story that she was very keen to get the UK out of debt completely. So we didn't owe anything. And the people who we were owing the money to said absolutely not because they still want their interest. They don't want to be paid off. They, you know, and around that time in 1982 was when her son Mark Thatcher mysteriously disappeared for six days during the Paris Dakar rally. Um, yes. What can you? I understand that that is covered in the Crown, but any uh, information of how that's portrayed in the Crown? If you think there was anything insidious that her son was kidnapped uh, in order to force her to do something she ordinarily wouldn't have wanted to do? Your thoughts, please, Peter. Well, I'm not aware of that theory that he could have been kidnapped. Certainly, there's no hint of that given in the Crown. But the way that, that 
um, series that that sorry that particular episode starts off with the title of favorites, and they basically try to have that the queen's got a favorite which is Prince Andrew, and uh, the the prime minister's got her favorite which is her her son Mark, even though he's he's uh, got a twin sister, and um, so I'm expecting ah. I know exactly where this is going to go. This is obviously going to now contrast with uh, Prince Andrew involved in the Falklands War. And yet that was a non-start. It didn't come about at all. So, no, I'm not aware of um, any um, behind-the-scenes activities that could have been going on with Mark Thatcher there. Although I do know that Mark Thatcher was involved in some commendable attempts to support mercenaries to overthrow dictatorships such as in Equatorial Guinea in, in Africa, and uh, unfortunately, some of his mercenaries end up uh, betrayed by a South African ANC government intelligence in a sting operation. They ended up in prison in, in Harare in Zimbabwe. So, Margaret, uh, so Mark Thatcher uh, came in there's some kind of notoriety here and notoriety in uh, South Africa in our press. Although I commented that if he had succeeded in overthrowing that detestable human rights abuser, that dictator in um, Equatorial Guinea should have been given Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, so uh, I think Mark Thatcher is an interesting character. Uh, he certainly has dealings with the um, mercenary world, and he's been involved in some intrigues and government overthrows in Africa. That, that's what I know in my circles. Thank you very much, Peter. And the other question, um, I understand uh, your uh, father was very loyal to uh, the British royal family, fought in World War Two, as you said. Um, some members of the audience will find it uh, difficult to square the circle of the British involvement in the Boer, two Boer Wars and um, how you would still see yourself as a royalist despite that. Is that because we know exactly who was behind the Boer Wars when you see things like uh, the hampers that they were given with uh, thanks from the various Rothschild sons? How would you square that circle for the audience? Yes, th th this is disturbing because uh, I want to believe the best about uh, people like Queen Victoria and yet hideous atrocities did take place under her realm. Now, we know that she was old at the time that the war was starting. She is in the last uh, days. Uh, we know that uh, that the Queen may have been out of touch with a lot of what was being done in her name. So I don't want to personally blame Queen Victoria. And from what I understood, Queen Victoria is a, a fine evangelical Christian. Certainly Prince Albert was. So uh, when I look at the Anglo-Boer War, I'm more inclined to be blaming your foreign secretary, uh, uh, the secretary for, for the colonies, um, uh, Chamberlain and the uh, Lord Alfred Milner in particular down here and behind them the Rothschilds because as Stephen Mitford Goodson documented in his book The Genocide of the Boers the Rothschilds, all three major ones, sent a Christmas card with a hamper with a whole lot of goodies for every one of the 480,000 British and Commonwealth troops Empire troops in South Africa who at that stage were burning down 30,000 farms and dynamiting their homes and their uh, wells and slaughtering millions of livestock, cattle, sheep, horses, uh, absolutely hideous, uh, as part of the Scorched Earth campaign to destroy the Transvaal Republics and hand over to the Rothschilds the uh, gold and diamond mines, which they wanted full control over. And uh, at that time, imagine Christmas uh, 1901, 
that the Rothschilds sponsored a hamper which included everything from uh, Christmas pudding, uh, biscuits, uh, tobacco, pipe, uh, cigarettes, uh, all the way through to uh, sweets and uh, razors and all sorts, amazing hampers that each one got 480,000 of these with a personal card from the Rothschild bankers thanking them for their service. Now, it, it, when I was on the border fighting the communists, I would have been a bit uh, disturbed to get something like that from, say, Harry Oppenheimer of De Beers or Anglo-American. We didn't, but I'm, I'm saying it would be comparable to that. Or imagine somebody in the British Army or the American forces in Iraq or Afghanistan getting something from a Rothschild or a Rockefeller today. Um, wouldn't that seem a bit strange? <laughs> Back to you, Andrew. <laughs> well, that leads me to another question, Peter. Now, tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but there's a law in South Africa that every business has to be at least 51% owned by a black uh, person. Is that correct? That is correct. It's it's called BBBEE, Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment, also known as Affirmative Action. They've made a law that any company, I think it's with over 12 employees or something like that, has to be BBBEE. You've got to make sure that 51% of the shares and uh, all the rest of it's in the hands of blacks. Now, uh, this has meant some people have made sure the companies don't grow beyond this magic number of 12 employees or whatever. And then um, I might be out on the number because those laws change every now and then. Uh, but I know, for example, a good friend who's got a company where she produces fluffy animals and uh, uh, she is as compliant as she needs to be because of the size of the company, but she cannot sell these in airports or any place that the government owns because they own airports uh, or for the tourist market because uh, even though she's BBBE compliant, being under the required number, she isn't majority owned by blacks and therefore uh, they won't allow any of her stock to be sold in any of these uh, places such as airport terminals where they have uh, the control. So it's very bad. It basically is crippling companies that don't commit economic suicide and hand over control to people who didn't invest and build up the company. You can imagine how open this is to companies just being looted by people who are brought onto the board for no other reason than the color of their skin. And they've got no investment in the company. So why should they not loot it and then move on? And that's what's happening. It's, it's basically economic suicide or murder, as the case may be. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, my next question was, so uh, do the Oppenheimers with the diamond mines and the other people who own the gold mines, do they have to be 51% owned by a black person, Peter? Apparently not, because we don't hear anything <laughs> about that. We haven't noticed that they've changed their rules. So there's different rules for, for them, without a doubt. And this brings up the other intriguing thing in that, do you know, if you live in South Africa, Botswana or Southwest Africa, Namibia, and if you find a diamond, it could be on your farm. You might have been um, scuba diving off the coast and you found it, or you might have been scuba diving in the middle of the Orange River uh, next to your farm and found a diamond. Every diamond in uncut diamond, the whole of South Africa, Namibia and Botswana belongs to De Beers Anglo-American. De facto. And the worst crime you can commit in these three countries would be what they call illicit diamond buying, IDB. And they've got a specialized uh, police unit uh, in that. And people know that if you're caught doing IDB, I mean, you're finished. You'll get a heavier sentence 
than for mass murder or anything else. It's even worse than tax evasion. So we know who runs the country when the biggest monopoly and the biggest penalties and the most serious uh, in, in, um, enforcement of law is when it comes to IDB, illicit diamond buying. Imagine that, that even on your own farm, if you find a diamond, it belongs to the beers. And uh, uh, that just shows who is the power above the powers that be in Namibia, Botswana, and South Africa. They are the law, and they're above the law, and they don't seem to have to obey the law that the rest of us do. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. And before we go, can you please let the audience know how they can contact you, your website, Facebook, whatever you would like, please. Certainly. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za or za. Peter at frontline.org.za to use the American pronunciation. And missionsa.org is our website. So it's www.missionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. That's the website. And uh, uh, you'll be able to also find us on Facebook, both Frontline Fellowship and myself, Peter Hammond. We praise God for you. Thank you, Andrew Carrington, for all that you do. Love ACH radio programs. It's so important that people support this kind of independent uh, radio news source. Uh, so let's do what we can to invite friends to support this. Thank you, Andrew. Back to you. Thank you so much, Peter. And also, I think I can speak for the audience to say how delighted we are since you were able to join us on a weekly basis earlier in the year. You continue to put out fantastic presentations. So uh, there you go, folks. Uh, the other links to Peter's uh, websites are in the post for the show at andrewcarringtonhitchcock.com. There are others. Please check them out. Please have a look at his film reviews. I've already got those, so they'll be going in the post for today's show. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, bye for now.